Hello, this is Colm O'Mongoin, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here, flying solo for one episode only of Brexit Republic to bring you some bonus material. Ireland's complicated relationship with the UK comes into sharp focus in its relations with Europe. The country's diplomats are taking note of rising racial tensions in the US. Ireland is playing an increasing role in the UN and the state is looking outwards to extend its global reach. They're all themes we saw in 2020 and they're also recurring themes in the latest collection of documents in Irish foreign policy edited by the Royal Irish Academy and covering the period from 1962 to 1965. So, given the resonance of the matters discussed, not least with the ongoing Brexit toing and froing, and Ireland about to take up its role in the Security Council from January 2021. In this bonus episode of Brexit Republic, I've been talking to two of the people behind the project, Michael Kennedy and John Gibney, for a run through the archives. Let's hear from them now. My name is Michael Kennedy. I'm the executive editor of the Royal Irish Academy's Documents on Irish Foreign Policy series. My name is John Gibney. I'm one of the assistant editors of the Documents on Irish Foreign Policy series. And what Documents in Irish Foreign Policy does is it's a a partnership between the Academy, the National Archives of Ireland and the Department of Foreign Affairs to make available the records of the Department of External Affairs over over 30 years old. We now call it the Department of Foreign Affairs and to show really to to anyone who wants to to, to read our volumes on our website, difp.ie, how Ireland makes its foreign policy and to show the primary source material, the documents, the telegrams, the secret dispatches, the code messages about how Irish diplomats conduct our foreign policy overseas, how Ireland acts internationally and how over really the last hundred years, because we do 100 years of foreign policy now, how Ireland has taken its place amongst the nations of the world and projected its interests. There are interests, you know, the interests the Irish people have for areas like nuclear disarmament, human rights, relations with Britain, views about neutrality, European integration, all of these areas that build up our foreign policy. What we do in DIFP is we tell the history of that through the primary source materials. That's the documents that the diplomats themselves wrote and used to conduct foreign policy over the last century. John, digging through these boxes of page after page of documents and correspondence and everything else, you get an insight into the personalities of some of the people who were Ireland's representatives on the global stage. And there's also a fair few amusing nuggets in there. It's not all dry correspondence. There's some fairly eyebrow-raising stuff as well, which we'll probably get to later on in this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it depends how you look at it. On the one hand, you could look at all the material as, say, diplomatic history. But bear in mind that, I mean, traditionally, the Irish Foreign Service in the first few decades of its existence, and I mean, with the series, we're only up to the 1960s so far, but it wasn't huge. It certainly wouldn't have had the resources or the manpower available to other foreign services around the world. So what that meant in practice, you might say, is the Irish diplomats had to cover a lot of bases, which means, and the flip side of that is that the documentary trail they leave behind is very rich and ends up covering far more than just, say, just purely diplomacy. There's a huge, you'd have a huge amount of, say, social history, for example. Eyewitness reports of, say, I mean, say for the 1960s, we would have covered, say, well, we might come to this in a little while, but eyewitness reports, their own analyses and testimonies of a wide variety of international events and issues. I mean, they have to cast their net quite widely, you know, dealing with the Irish diaspora. So that brings in the social history of Ireland after independence. And it means that, in a way, the actual archive, I don't view it as diplomatic history. I view it as, say, Irish history explored through diplomacy which is a different, slightly different emphasis, but the material is there to warrant that. You know, it's, there's a surprisingly diverse range of material in that archive. 
and we do try and get that into the volumes. So, Michael, this being the Brexit Republic podcast normally and seeing as we're putting it out through that channel, we're going to look in a bit of detail today about Ireland's initial application to join the European Economic Community, which is a much smaller entity at the time. I think it's six members at the stage we're looking at it and we're trying to get in at the same time as the UK. I suppose we're at the opposite end of that today. But at the time, we couldn't imagine ourselves being in at a time where the UK was out. What are Ireland's, before we get into that process, what's the state of the world at that time and what are other what are Ireland's other major foreign policy concerns at the time? Well, we're, we're coming back to the, the first decades of the Cold War. The Cold War really at its height, the, the struggle between uh, the United States and the USSR for global domination in terms of politics, political ideas. It's a dangerous place. Uh, in, it's the era of the Cuban Missile Crisis we're looking at at the moment. So when you're looking overall at Irish foreign policy in the, the early to mid-1960s, two main themes, Europe, which we're going to look at, and also the United Nations. And that's the big clash at the centre of foreign policy. Do we put all our effort into the UN or do we put all our effort into joining the EEC? And the, you know, the, the EEC was something that Ireland initially was very cautious of. If you, you know, go back uh, to, the, to 1945, uh, to 1950, to the origins of the coal and steel community. And Ireland was very standoffish when it came to Europe, that de Valera's idea was a Europe of the states. National borders were important and that the supranational cooperation that Jean Monnet and his colleagues brought in with the European coal and steel community in 1950-51 was something Ireland couldn't quite comprehend. We didn't have any coal and steel either, of course, so we weren't involved in that initial part of the, the integration process. And it's by the 19, the late 1950s when Sean Lamasse becomes Taoiseach, when Ken Whitaker is working on the first programme for economic expansion. And there's a, a sense that if we can get involved in this great European experiment of, of integration, perhaps it will not only bring Ireland back into the heart of Europe, where traditionally, you know, we've seen ourselves as a, as a European country and it'll help us to uh, separate ourselves a bit more from the orbit of the UK and the Commonwealth, but also it'll be a process that will enable Ireland to modernise, enable the economy to grow and enable Ireland to benefit from all the developments of, of the post-war period. And Lamasse's view is if we can get into the EEC, if we can join that trading bloc, it will benefit Ireland by allowing Irish exporters and entrepreneurs to export to Europe. We'll have export-led economic growth and all of the, the social and economic societal change that has encompassed post-war Europe will come to Ireland and Ireland will become a modern European global country. And that's Lamasse's outlook. Now, that's very much in contrast to what Frank Aiken wants at the United Nations. We, we can talk about that maybe a bit yeah, later. I was just going to ask but, about that because there is a tension yeah. between Frank Aiken is trying to take a line with the so-called non-aligned countries, yeah. people who are coming out of a colonial past and Ireland thinks along the same lines as these countries. And yet there's a tension between Ireland trying to develop positive diplomatic relations to pave their way into the European economic community and maybe some of the stink they're bringing up at the UN with non-proliferation. There's another point about that as well that's worth interjecting with, which is that, you know, by this stage, Ireland at the United Nations had kind of carved their reputation as a, I suppose, a state, a Western European state that was instinctively sympathetic to emerging decolonizing countries. Now, this was at a time when you still had European, the remnants of European empires, and you had European countries with that, within the original EEC with very substantial overseas interests. 
And there is a document in the volume about that essentially suggests that perhaps Irish diplomats of the UN should be wary of taking overt stances of, about colonialism, lest that interfere or damage relations with countries that you were trying to persuade to let you into the EEC. So it's an example of how, on the one hand, you might see a centre of gravity in relation to trying to join a body with the EEC. But there's a ripple effect that kind of carries across a range of interests. And at this time as well, there's an ambivalence on neutrality, which is assumed at this stage to have always been an article of faith of Irish foreign policy. Reading the documents from around this time, that's far from the case. Building on what John has said there, it's there's a, a clash of ideas at the top that we always think of Frank Aiken as the dominant force in 1960s foreign policy because of the UN. But Lamas is really running the show. And Lamas, as Taoiseach, dictates what foreign policy is going to be. And it's Europe. He leaves Aiken, that area of the UN, to, to use almost as he wishes, but he always warns him. That's, and this is building on what John was saying there. He says to him, don't do anything at the UN that's going to annoy the French. Say when the, the French nuclear tests taking place in the early 60s. Don't annoy them because we need them to get into into Europe. And the French are, are very uncertain about Irish membership of the EEC. Don't is annoy the right, Is he right on that front? He, he is. He reads it's, the room well on that. Yeah, he, he really did. The, the Belgians also are, are policy in the Congo, although the, the Bel Belgium as a small state would like to see another state in the community to, to counterbalance France. So there, there's, there's a at the top of Irish foreign policy making, there is that interaction between the two top players, between the Taoiseach and the Minister for External Affairs. And I think in an Irish context, you, you can remember th that up to the mid-1960s, it's the minority of years where there has been a separate Taoiseach and a separate Minister for External Affairs. Eamon de Valera combined the two offices. Aiken always followed what de Valera said, and he always generally follows what Lamas says. So you've got that period now, which we're looking at, where Lamas is saying Europe is important. And your point on neutrality there, Lamas is willing to put everything on the table. You could devote a series of podcasts to neutrality, but the con right. at, at this period... But in, the in summary, if, if neutrality yeah. is going to get in the way of getting into the European economic community, it's up there as a bargaining chip. Absolutely up there for bargaining. And the, the, the mood music is, we will revisit our neutrality and we will revisit NATO membership. And remember, Ireland said it would join NATO. It liked the idea of NATO. Only the timing wasn't right in 1948-49 when it was invited because of partition. There's never been a notion in, in Irish, uh, in the, the history of Irish foreign policy, that NATO was a bad thing. Now that came on in the 1980s, the second phase of the Cold War, nuclear uh, disarmament, nuclear, you know, CND and so on. It's all up for grabs. And there's no European political community as such in this period. That's, it's it's the economics, it's the trade. Lamas is willing to put that on, put neutrality on the table and say, okay, we'll discuss this down the line. And I suppose the, the, the aspect behind that is when you look at emergency planning in Ireland around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis during this phase of the Cold War, the concept that's going across the cabinet table is we're going to be hit. Dublin is going to get an X megaton bomb. Shannon is going to be hit. Derry is going to be hit. Belfast. We're going to be in it anyway. Whether we like it or not, we'll either be brought in or we'll, we'll be forced in. So the, the mood music there is not good in terms of the, the future of neutrality. Thus, it can be discussed with the Europeans. There's never been a neutral in the community up to this period. So Dublin is very worried that neutrality might be seen as, as problematic to, to get in. And that's one of the big negotiating areas. 
convincing the six that a neutral in the community will be okay. And in fact, a neutral might bring something to the community because of Ireland's involvement in UN peacekeeping. And John, it's, had they been given to understand that it would be problematic or was this a proactive offering to try and improve, as Michael says, the mood music? It's funny, well, well, I mean, part of the attraction of looking at or publishing, you know, archival documents and primary sources is that the best the best way to figure out what a, someone in the past was actually thinking or saying is to look at what they thought or said. And one issue that was always... Um, that seemed to constantly recur in that slow, painstaking process of Ireland saying that, well, we, we we have the we have the means to bring ourselves up to speed economically. The answer that seemed to come back was, well, that's fine, but do you share the political objectives of a uh, European unity? And this was something that was quite striking. That uh, from the outset, there was quite it was quite explicit that it wasn't just economic. It was there was a political dimension to it as well. And even when Lamas went to Brussels to make his statement to the Council of Ministers in January 1962. He actually says that the aims of the European economic community go far beyond purely economic matters. It's quite open that there was a political dimension to the EEC, or that ultimately it was envisaged that there would be. And this was something that was framed in the context, and Irish diplomats knew it, of the horrors of the Second World War. So the question arose then, if there's going to be political obligation, what exactly is that? And then that would drag in, say, institutions such as NATO. And the question of would NATO and the EEC essentially overlap? Where would a neutral fit into that? And could you have a neutral as part of the EEC in the midst of the Cold War? So it's funny that and when you, when you think back on it and you think a European economic community, it's striking to look at the contemporary material from the time and just how explicitly it was stated that there was going to be a political dimension to this. And the mass of the Irish government were quite upfront in saying that, yeah, they would consider it. They would consider those applications. And essentially what you're saying, what they were saying was that, yeah, neutrality was something that would be up for discussion, that perhaps it wasn't an article of faith, perhaps it had been formulated in a particular time and circumstances. But in these times and circumstances in the 1960s, yeah, it was quite possible that neutrality would be parked if that was um, a price that needs to be paid for joining the EEC. Now, obviously, that didn't happen in the 1960s, but it was most certainly in the ether, and it certainly wasn't hinted at. It was discussed quite explicitly, and that does come true in the material that we've just published. Because we really had to try and convince the six members of the EEC that we were up to the task. You know, neutrality is one of the, the, the stumbling blocks, one of the hurdles. And then there's the overall area of, is Ireland up to it economically? Can we trade with Europe? Are our industries and our farmers, and this is the early years, the common agricultural policy as well, are we up to speed in terms of international trade? And, and you really get a, a sense, particularly when, even when you look at video footage of, of the time, that the Irish are, are on the outside, they're on the extremity of Europe, and they're trying to make the case to the six that yes, we can, we're up to this, we're able to do it. And it's down to Lamas we've spoken about, Con Kremen, the Secretary General of the Department of External Affairs, Ken Whitaker is hugely important in this. And then- Tell us a bit more about Con Kremen, what well, kind of a character, because we know about Whitaker, yeah. we know about Lamas, so what do we know about Con well, Kremen and what's his relationship with Lamas and Whitaker like? Well, Con Kremen is, is one of these polymaths who, who joins the Department of External Affairs in, in the 1930s. He's from West Cork. He's a classicist by, by training. He's studied in, in, in Oxford. He's studied broadly uh, across the globe. He serves in Germany during the, the Second World War. He's been ambassador to the Vatican, ambassador to the UK. He goes on to become ambassador to the United Nations, and he's really one of the, the high flyers in the department. He's a, a wonderful linguist, and so he's just the kind of man that you want there at the at the, the, the head of the, the, the department. He's also got a, a great head for, for detail as well and for figures. So he, he very much parallels Whitaker in this, this case. Now, he's not a man who always makes his opinions known, but as a civil servant who can grasp detail and 
make the process, you know, continue continue on and, and, and function. He's excellent. And then, you know, Whitaker is there. The other man I, I'd, I'd mention would be Frank Bigger, who's our ambassador to the EEC, who is doing the day-to-day groundwork of slogging away with the, the six and with the commission and saying, yeah, we're we're up to it. We're able to do this. And to keep Ireland on the commission's agenda, because that's, that really is one of the, the problems that when Ireland and Britain apply for EEC membership in 1961 at the same time. The focus of the EEC is for British membership. And Ireland is terrified that our application is going to be put in the drawer, which it effectively is, until um, the British application has been progressed. So, you know, we, we really are on the outside and we have to make our a case known, we have to become part of Europe. And I think that's one of the success stories of the last 60 years. We're now in there in a way that I don't think could have been imagined or maybe was only hoped for by the, the generation of the 1960s. And John, what's our relationship like with Britain at this point? Because after all, Aitken and Lamas, these are two IRA guys who've crossed swords with Britain before. What's the relationship like at this point? And what kind of a back channel are we keeping open to the Brits? as we try and get into the European economic community? Well, I suppose it's, it's surprisingly cordial and polite. Now, you, you might say that's partly the framework to which, to which people and officials relate to one another. But the relations were generally quite good. And you do get these kind of jocular flashes, you know, of um, the humanity of these people that comes through in some of this material. I mean, there's a, there's a document that's in the volume about Harold Wilson, where Harold Wilson makes a wisecrack about how he he represents more Irish people than any Irish politician, given his constituency. <laughs> right. Liverpool. He's probably um, right. I think the previous decade has seen a couple of hundred thousand people leave the country. So he, he may have a point on that. You know, and, and that's very subject. There's another thing in it about um, the potential moral dangers, you know, of young Irish girls going to the UK, which is a running theme throughout the volume. But again, it's a hint of the social history. At the same time, the relationship to the British economy was so overwhelming. And the emphasis that people like Lamas and Whitaker had on diversifying that economy, and to some extent, you might say, weakening that dependence. But this, there was a general positivity, you might say, in Anglo-Irish relations at that time. I mean, probably one of the most eye-catching. Is it in any way a joint project that the UK and Ireland both see that they're somewhat tied together in this enterprise, and that if if the UK goes in with Ireland, Ireland being such a, a a large food supplier, that the common external tariff would negatively affect Ireland if they enter the European Union. Uh, and similarly, if Ireland goes in without the UK, that's pretty much inconceivable because of how dependent we are for exports there. That's the nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the nightmare scenario is Britain goes in, we're outside, we've lost. We have lost, and, and Whitaker sees it pretty much forever. You know, we, 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 if we cannot convince Europe to get in along with the British, although we apply independently, of course, we're sunk. The whole the What are the immediate is, practical nightmare scenarios there? I mean, and, and how trade. similar... Trade. So trade. how similar is it to what we see today in terms of the arguments over border tariffs, friction, all of that kind of stuff? V- very similar. But I, I suppose the big difference is that in, in the 1960s, 77% of Irish trade, Irish exports go to the UK. We import from a far broader base uh, from Europe and the United States, but our trade is predominantly with the UK. And that that's one of the nightmares. The other nightmare is, is the border, because the, the, although it's not always made at the first level in discussions with Europe, partition and ending partition, a united Ireland is very much on the, the Lamas Aiken agenda, as, as you would expect from a Fianna Fáil government. And they want unity in the, the, the longer term. And so the, the north-south issue is very important, too, in that one of Lamas's major agendas is to simply improve relations with Northern Ireland in, in technical cooperation, cross-border trade is not what it might be. 
And Lamas realizes that if you want to improve relations with your neighbors, trade with them. Try and end that Cold War uh, between North and South and build that into that big improvement in British-Irish relations that John was talking about there. That really comes to be the, the, the key of Irish foreign policy when everything that we've been talking about here comes to a grinding halt in January 1963 when General de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle, the French president, effectively vetoes Britain's application for membership of the EEC and with it Ireland's uh, goes into uh, suspense that the integration process is is put into cold storage for a couple of years and then where do we go? And that's the, the big the issue in Dublin that all of a sudden the reports come back from Paris saying de Gaulle has pulled the plug. Now that there was a sense that this might happen but God it does. What do we do and now? It does pull the plug. I mean it, yeah. it, 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 it pauses our entry into the European Union John for 10 years so hmm. what's going on in that time? What are we discussing? together with the Brits, now that we've found really common cause with them by being blocked by de Gaulle. If you read the, you know, volume 12 of the series, the, the current one cover to cover, you could almost break it down to a couple of big chapters and that the attempts to join the EEC become so, they dominate the first half of the book. They really, really do. But when that came to a halt in 1963, as you rightly pointed out, and what I mentioned earlier on with eyewitness accounts, there's a great eyewitness account of that, pre- of, you know, Charles de Gaulle's press conference in 1963, where he basically shot down the prospects of the British entering. But in the second half then of the documents, you can see how right there's no that energy had nowhere to go. But two channels began to develop. On one hand, with the necessity for you and a UN peacekeeping force in Cyprus, a great deal of energy that you might say was dedicated to the United Nations, but was revived and channeled into that. On the other hand, there was almost like a conscious pivot towards trying to come up with some kind of more beneficial economic relationship with the United Kingdom. You know, notably the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Agreement that came in later 1965 was part of that. But you could definitely see a shift towards, there's a whole sequence of you know, very senior level meetings in London about you know negotiating trade issues with the British at a more kind of cultural level or a softer level. That's also the period in which you saw the end, uh, the process towards repatriating the remains of Roger Casement, which was seen as kind of like another, an aspect, an issue that could be, I suppose, a balm on the wound of Anglo-Irish relations. And there's a whole string of material on that, up to and including an eyewitness support of the exhumation of the remains. Which is Texas. pretty grim, it's, isn't it? You know, he was in the ground for 50 years, you know, and you're... When you're reading the report of an eye of a diplomat basically saying that two things bobbed to the surface of the grave filled with water and they torn out to be bones and eventually got 85 percent of us of the remains yeah it's pretty stark but that was his job his job was to go to pentagon prison make sure the procedures were adhered to make sure that whoever whatever was dug up from the ground to the prison was in fact the remains of roger casement his job was to provide as full and detailed report as he could to his superiors and he did but it has an amazing vividness you know, on the one hand, you might say, yeah, it's, it's gruesome detail, a grim detail, but that's inherent in the task. The point is that he recorded that detail. It is the culmination of a long effort at, I suppose, building a greater rapprochement in Anglo-Irish relations. But at a time when Anglo-Irish relations in a very cold, hard-headed manner had become far more important. You know, joining the EEC was no longer an issue. The United Kingdom was staying out. We were going to stay out by default. And therefore, it made sense from the point of view of the Irish government to try and come to some kind of uh, arrangement with your neighbours. What are the frictions between Ireland and the UK at this point in terms of trade and what mm. difference does it make to have a Labour government in the hot seat, if any? The frictions are over trade, over the tariffs, that the, the 15% tariff that the Labour government puts on out of the blue in October 1964. Sean Lamas called in the British ambassador to have a chat with him about the prospect of a 15% surcharge going on to uh, imports from Ireland apart from foodstuffs and tobacco and various other bits and pieces. And he actually said the agreements appear to have been set aside by the recent action without notice or consultation. 
He would like to think that in the Russian events, perhaps this aspect of the matter had been overlooked in Whitehall in drawing up the new proposals. You know, so I mean, he's given he's given his pe- these people a way out. The UK wants to export to us as well, but if we can't afford, if we're not getting any money from exporting to them, we're not going to be able to buy their goods in return. So Lamas goes to, to London and tries to explain, we need to do something about this. We need to try and a, a free trade between the two countries because Trade between Britain and Ireland has been managed since the 1930s by a very complex series of interrelated trade agreements that in October 1964, the British ride roughshod over and say, oh, they don't matter. Hence what John was saying earlier about Lamas saying, well, we hope you just forgot. So that's one of the, the one of the, 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 the frictions. There were frictions at the UN over the Congo, over how Conor Cruz O'Brien acted as a Secretary General Hammarskjöld's special representative. But that's something that Lamas tries to distance Ireland from. There are some frictions perhaps over Cyprus as well, that it being in the British sphere of influence, that Aiken is reluctant to let Irish troops serve in an area where Britain, Turkey and Greece might want to partition the Ireland. Ireland couldn't be seen to support partition internationally. But I think Lamas is doing something very subtle in the free trade area agreement that we should allude to. He's by freeing up our Anglo-Irish trade, he is ensuring that when European integration comes back on the agenda, there is no way that Brussels can look solely at London without incorporating Dublin at the same time. That the free trade area agreement will have to be brought onto the, the table in Brussels, and thus it secures Ireland's way of entry into the EC, or it's another channel by which Ireland can ensure that it still is kept in the minds of the Commission, because after the goal's veto, that's what Irish diplomats seek to do. It's, it, there's a lovely phrase of the diplomacy of dignified calm, and that's what our our, our men, and they are, they are all men at this point, our men in Europe are doing, is saying, well, we know you and the Commission, you and the Six, have massive problems now because of what de Gaulle has done. We know that your concern is with Britain, but we are here too. And in the context of the common agricultural policy as it's developing, in the context of integration as it will develop in the future, uh, we're still interested and, and we are definitely Europeans. Does it bring us any closer to Britain, John, this period? Or do we entirely trust the British government to be operating in a bona fide way, in a kind of a joint accession process? Well, I suppose there was an acceptance that the British government was ultimately going to do what suited its its own priorities, you know, which, which is what governments actually do. And that shouldn't come as any any particular surprise. There was almost a kind of sanguine element to some of these, some of these diplomatic correspondence, not just in the 60s, but earlier on, that this was simply... This is simply how things were and you had to put up with it. But you do see flashes of a, a willingness to almost kind of meet in some kind of a, some kind of respects. You know, I mean, a will, I mean, there is a document about a willingness to let Irish representatives unofficially sit at, you know, briefings in relation to Commonwealth matters. I think you do, you do see a certain recognition of some Irish concerns on the British side. Now, but the thing is, though, we are the, the DIFP volumes go from election to election. Okay, to maintain degree of neutrality about how we approach things. So this ends in 1965. If you'd come, uh, the next two volumes in the series are going to kind of paint a very, very different vista because rather in, in April 1965, you don't have the kind of explosion that would come at the end of the 60s, which changed things so dramatically. Well, I'll tell you where you do see that the two governments working beside each other, and that's over North South relations. That when Sean Lamas meets the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Terence O'Neill, in January and February 1965. That's the first cross-border meeting between the two prime ministers and the island since 1925. The British want to support it. Let's say, well, should you know, should we make a send a message of support? Should, what should we do? And we really want to get you guys talking together. This is very important, and particularly in the context of where we're looking at things now, in, in the, the you know the, in, in the Brexit world, that the free trade area agreement with the Agreement of London includes a special protocol by which north-south trade on the island of Ireland can be freed up at a different and faster speed 
to trade between Britain and Ireland. So I think that's something that that um, didn't quite come out over the last few years. That you know these variable speed British Irish North South East West relations are possible, and they're in there in the 1960s in the Free Trade Area Agreement, and, and it's part of of La Masse's uh, technical agenda to improve the, the trade with, with with Northern Ireland, and and so and Britain wants to support that as well. So that, that's uh, I think an area where the governments are, are very much in sync. One of the other things we've seen throughout the whole Brexit period is. Ireland's diplomatic presence in the United States bearing fruit, I suppose, in terms of exercising leverage over this. We have a diplomatic presence in the States during this time that while they're not interacting perhaps with the Hill as they do now, they do have some interesting observations during this time at a time of massive social upheaval. Yeah, there's, a, there's you know, you might say flash, flashes of the revolution do appear. I mean, there's one report about an Irish ambassador going out and buying the Nation of Islam's newspaper and being taken right. aback by the... What does he make of it? <laughs> He, uh, he was surprised at the depiction of Irish-American police officers in the US as racists. He seemed to be quite taken aback by that. I mean, the Irish diplomatic network in the States was fairly, you know, there was a presence in quite a number of cities. So you do get kind of, um, you know, curious little hooks about the about the energies they were devoting to it. Gun running is obviously a safe bet, dealing with, the, you know, speaking to militant Irish-Americans. And then there's the pen portraits. One of the first documents that came across was the pen portrait of Lyndon Johnson after the assassination of Kennedy. Because obviously there's a great deal in this about John F. Kennedy. It's the period when he, when he came to Ireland. But this volume does contain some of the kind of background politicking that would have gone into preparing his visit. You know, question of was he expected to refer to partition? You know, apparently he's reported the saying is, he's reported as looking like you might have a headache, you know, if the issue was brought up again, but was quite relieved to find out that he, wasn't, he didn't have to talk about partition at all. And I think you've got really, you see from these how hard we had to work in the United States, that Irish-American relations were not as positive as we, we might think, certainly after neutrality, after the neutrality in the Second World War through the 50s, non-membership in NATO. What's your, what, are, what is your side in the Cold War, Ireland, is the way, you know, some Americans are looking at, at, at Ireland. So the Kennedy presidency is, is something so unusual, something out of the blue that now we have a bit of influence in the White House itself because we, we haven't had it on the Hill up to now. Uh, we haven't had it in the very Anglophone State Department, Anglophile State Department. Uh, so this is something that Ambassador Tommy Kiernan, who's one of our veteran diplomats, goes right back to the 1920s, is on his, his last tour, if you like. And, and he gets on with JFK. There was a quote somewhere that uh, the two men are on the same wavelength, you know, the, the younger Kennedy and the older uh, veteran diplomat Kiernan hit it off. And so there's a very good meeting of minds there in that period of the Kennedy presidency. When Johnson comes in, big change. No more than that big change over de Gaulle vetoing EEC entry. You know, and I think John alluded to it as well with, with Cyprus. 1964 is a real, 63-64 is a real pivot year in Irish foreign policy. Now all the certainties, Europe, Kennedy, uh, a role in transatlantic relations maybe for Ireland, all gone. We've got to go back to the drawing board, and that's British-Irish relations, the Free Trade Area Agreement, and relations with Northern Ireland. So there's really a lot happening there. There's a fascinating briefing paper in there that was prepared for Sean Lamas, because Kennedy came to Ireland, but the reciprocal visit by Lamas to the United States came later on, the year, later on that year. And the essential subject of this paper is what to say and not to say when given a speech in Chicago. You know, what What exactly, what buttons do you want to press or what do you, what minefields do you want to steer clear of? And right. uh, it's surprising. I mean, one one thing that was suggested was don't don't really dwell too much on the United Nations because it wasn't that popular in the US at that time. It was specifically pointed out that race relations in Chicago in the early to mid 60s were very, very fraught and probably a subject best avoided. And surprisingly, one thing that was felt should be emphasised was Shannon Airport, its development. We sometimes have a very cynical attitude of Irish Americans being all, you know, shamrocks and Blarney and whatnot. But there's a real sense that, no, people in the United States are interested in the idea of Ireland modernising. Shannon Airport is well known. 
that here was a brand new example of Ireland's modernity. It's it's shiny progress. It's exactly the, it's like that right. that famous Time magazine cover of the mass with the leprechaun pulling back the curtain to reveal a factory. And the actually was if you want to, but if you want to engage an American audience here, you know this is the kind of thing you want to talk about. People people are interested in Shannon Airport, and it's amazing that you know it was actually suggested that you know Shannon Airport in the states at the moment probably has a greater resonance and is better known than Killarney. The sense was that, well, at a time when the mass was trying to, and his government were trying to promote that exact idea of Ireland as a modern country, a country to do business in, it was suggested that's what you say in Chicago. Right. Mention Shannon Airport, mention the proof in the pudding, and that was that's, that's what it was meant to be. And also with Shannon, the question that the, the hard edged issue there is we don't let the Americans fly into Dublin until the early 1970s. If you're a transatlantic operator, TWA, Pan Am, you've got to fly into Shannon. And that's to, to bring business to the area, support the industrial estate, etc. So if you're looking for problematic areas in Irish-American relations, Shannon proves to be a really problematic area by the early 1970s. So much so that the American government is going to remove Aer Lingus's landing rights in American airports if American airlines, particularly Pan Am, aren't allowed land in Dublin. And this goes right up to the top of the, the Nixon White House. It's on Henry Kissinger's desk as National Security Advisor. You know, it's, it's, it's an amazingly important area. And there's also I, another, another thing about Shannon Airport is that it wasn't just the Americans landing there. I was like, going to ask you, the Russians also yeah. there, don't they? And so yeah. as you talk about Shannon Airport, how are we with the Russians at this stage? Because if the goal has blocked the UK and Ireland from getting into the European Union with the perception perhaps that they lean too close to America... How's our leaning in the other direction scene? Well, it talks about Aeroflot and Shannon first. Shannon pops up in the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's a good example of a world event that's reflected here through Irish eyes, in that the first mention of the Cuban Missile Crisis comes from an account of a meeting between Sean Lamas and Conrad Adenauer, when word comes through that Kennedy has made a speech about the situation in Cuba. Then there'd be in a, there's an account by Tommy Kiernan, the Irish ambassador to Washington, of a meeting with Kennedy on the same subject. And then you get to the nitty-gritty of the ins and outs of how how it may have impinged upon Ireland. And Shannon looms large in that because given that there were Russian flights through Shannon, the question began to be asked, well, what else is on those flights? Is weapons and, are weapons and military material being being siphoned uh, past the blockade through Shannon Airport? So you did have questions and queries about, well, could Russian and indeed, you know, Eastern European airlines be searched or checked in some kind of way? It's an example of how even though we're focusing on how Ireland was attempting to join the EEC, this was happening within a world within a world framed by the Cold War. There was no Irish diplomatic engagement with or links with Russia until the 1970s, and there wasn't a great inclination to encourage them either. You might, I mean, diplomats might encounter each other in, say, third in third countries, like in London, for example. But just uh, but, no formal diplomatic relations. This no. might even before the state was formed, there had been some level of contact or outreach. We just have moved away from that entirely. Up until the seventies, basically, yeah, didn't yeah. do it. Russia vetoed Ireland's uh, application into the uh, UN in 1946. There was no desire in you know strongly anti-communist Catholic Ireland to open relations with Russia, and it's it's really only in the late sixties, linking into what John said there, that, that we begin to think, gosh, maybe we ought to have a mission in Moscow. The main bit of interaction was through the London Embassy, and of course through the United Nations. And there's the famous moment where Fred Boland, as uh, Irish you know Irish ambassador to the UN, president of the General Assembly, breaks the gavel, uh, trying to stop Nikita Khrushchev making a, a, an inf inflammatory speech in the General Assembly. But by and large, we don't have great links with Russia, the Soviet Union, or with Eastern Europe in this period. We looked at opening a mission in Czechoslovakia in 1948, but the Prague coup put an end to that. And we are looking to an extent at trade with Poland, Czechoslovakia, 
and uh, perhaps Yugoslavia. But there's always a sense that if we do that, we might be annoying the Americans. And that's at the basis of Sean Lamas's foreign policy, that he's very much a transatlantic of a transatlantic mindset. Uh, he's very much pro-American and he would not like to see our foreign policy doing anything that might make the Americans question how neutral Ireland, non-NATO membership Ireland, is uh, positioning itself. I mean, there's a document about the arrest of a Soviet trawler and how that could, I mean, something as mundane as that, but here's a trawler called the Paltus, which was detained and was registered in Riga. And the question arose, well, if, in terms of writing a complaint about this or your standard kind of admonishment for um, a breach of protocol, the fact that it was registered in Latvia, you'd have to word a reply in such a way that didn't implicitly recognize the Soviet occupation of Latvia. The exact wording is, the first paragraph of our reply is intended to deal with any question of recognition by implication of the Soviet annexation of Latvia. Annexation, I should say, rather than occupation. But you get the point. You know, something as small as that, which can have a much, much wider implication, comes through. I mean, there was a, a very, it was a great wariness of the other side in the Cold War, which is essentially because, while officially neutral, we, we did regard ourselves as being on one camp rather than the other. And occasionally we do get our diplomats do go over over to the other side of the wall. There's some some great documents in the volume on uh, Irish diplomats visiting East Berlin and what they see, the kind of the social history of the GDR comments that, you know, Berlin will be an empty city in 20 years time. But we know far, far from it. That was the view of an Australian diplomat to an Irish diplomat and, and walking around the paradise of the DDR and saying, well, actually, it's not all that it's, it's it's cracked up to be. And looking at the fashions, looking at what you can buy in shops and wondering how long this will all last for. So as we leave this collection, which runs up to 1965, we're eight years off joining the European Economic Community, but what's the state of play? We're still in there. We still have our hat in the ring. Our application for EEC membership still stands. We, We never remove it. Ireland is increasingly looking globally. The movement is to open missions in in Tokyo. Uh, We open in in New Delhi in 1964. Trade is really at the core of foreign policy. And of course, we're, we're looking at this ourselves, knowing that the troubles are only a few years down the line. But in 1965, the sense was, well, relations with Northern Ireland are improving. Relations with the UK are looking good. We're still in a good place in the United Nations. Our trade is improving. We're becoming a more modernized country. You know, what could possibly happen? And there's very little consciousness of the bargaining civil rights movement in Northern Ireland. In fact, if there is a, a blind eye in the Department of External Affairs in the 60s, it's towards grassroots movements in the North and, and the tensions within Northern society. Now, that is that does change very quickly on the outbreak of the Troubles. But I think our, our mid-1960s Ireland sees itself in terms of foreign policy as in a very mature, respected place as a small state. We're recognizing the newly independent states of Africa and Asia. We open our first embassy in uh, in the African continent in Nigeria in 1961. And we're we're getting out there. The inward-looking Ireland uh, has very, has definitely gone. Uh, Lamas is, uh, you know, an old man in a hurry, if I can put it that way. And the the diplomatic network is is slowly expanding, but very much taking in uh, the Cold War world and trying to make an Irish place in it. What's this space? Because we're going to be starting another volume soon after this. Yeah, I've, I've started on volume thirteen already. The last cabinet minute that I looked at, because volume 13 will go up to 1969, up to the summer of 1969. One of the last cabinet minutes I looked at was simply titled uh, Trouble in Northern Ireland, Unrest in Northern Ireland. So that's that's where we're going. And I suppose in retrospect, 
we're looking at the the calm before the storm that would take up you know our lifetimes and the the, the aftermath of which we're, we're we're still dealing with today in in on the island of ireland and in british irish relations uh, for people who want to get a snapshot a synopsis or even get up to the elbows and dig into the detail of the entire book where can they get it and what other material is there to be viewed online? Well, they can buy it from the, the Royal Irish Academy if they wish to online, uh, ria.ie, and the web shop is there to, to purchase a copy and it'll be sent out post haste. Uh, if you want to look online, we have a website, difp.ie, where we have volumes running from 1919 to 1948 online. We also have a lot of supporting material there, the introductions to the volumes, uh, biographical details, and we're going to put some of uh, the later volumes online in the new year running from 1948 up to the mid-1950s. And if you want to find out what's going on in the project on a day-to-day -day basis, we're on Twitter at DIFP underscore RIA. And one thing I should say about the website is that it's open access. So all the material that's published in the volumes goes onto the website eventually but the website is free to access and will be into the foreseeable future. So it's a public resource. I would encourage people to explore it and make use of it as best they can. All right. Thanks a million, gents. That's all. Pleasure. Okay. Thanks. Thank okay. you. Great. So if you enjoyed that and you want to go to rte.ie forward slash news forward slash Brexit hyphen Republic, we'll have links to some of the articles from RTE Brainstorm based on some of the documents that you've just heard about there and a Spotify list of the music from the period kindly put together by John Gibney who you heard from in that episode. Well I hope you enjoyed this historic edition. Good luck, happy Christmas and we'll be back with the usual offering as soon as a big development breaks on Brexit which may or may not be sooner than we all think. <laughs>